0: Turn to the 23rd Psalm once again as we con- conclude our study in this wonderful text. Psalm 23. I have chosen to speak in this particular passage of Scripture over the last couple of weeks. This now making the third week. Because I know that a number of you have been in need of comfort. And certainly part of my responsibility as your pastor, as your shepherd, is to somehow be aware of those needs in your life and to do everything I can through the ministry of the Spirit and and His Word to to minister to those needs and so that's why we've been here and uh, we will conclude today with uh, I think a wonderful and joyous uh, ending as we reflect upon what the psalmist had to say to us in this wonderful pastoral psalm may I remind you of the context David was fleeing King David was fleeing from Jerusalem His son Absalom and uh, his entourage had come into town or were coming into town to abdicate the throne, to run his father out. There was great betrayal, great heartache. David was fleeing into the wilderness with some of his entourage, and they were going back once again into the desert, dry land without food and water, the place where he had grown up in many ways and tended sheep. In the past, and in agony of soul, as the king leaves, knowing that his own son had betrayed him in such a way, we find that somehow, by God's grace and through his Spirit, God moves upon his heart sometime during that period of time, I believe, to write this wonderful psalm that has been such a comfort to so many. So here we have a testimony of King David of God's goodness and his mercy, a divinely inspired psalm in the midst of his heartache and his anguish of soul. And in this powerful psalm, we have very vivid imagery given to us, imagery of a shepherd. And of course, a shepherd arouses emotions with pictures of of, of tender care and guidance and, and provision and protection. And thus far, we have gone on a journey with the psalmist as he has taken us through a desolate, a desolate wilderness of heartbreak and despair. And on this journey, he has testified, and many of us obviously would concur, that we have a personal and attentive and a sovereign shepherd, almighty God himself that leads us at times even through the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us in those seasons of fear and and great mourning, times when all seems lost. And yet, in the context of such occasions, we discover that they were but mere appointments from God, where the Good Shepherd gives us an opportunity to allow Him to prove Himself powerful on our behalf. We've been reminded thus far that we are pilgrims of promise, if you will, that we walk through the valley with a calm heart that never gets in a hurry. We never run in panic ahead of God. We've also learned that we walk through the valley. We don't walk around it or somehow try to get over it, but God takes us through it. And as we go through it calmly, we have a confident expectation that God will meet every need and take us all the way through safely to the other side. We've also learned that we are to fear no evil, even those evils that we concoct in our imagination. Why? Because thou art with me. We've learned that a man of faith renounces fear, knowing that his faithful companion and guide, indeed his shepherd, is the Lord of hosts. And we know, as the psalmist also says, that the Lord encamps around those that fear Him, and He rescues them. And now we find ourselves in verse 4, again, where the Holy Spirit inspires the psalmist to make, I believe, a very brief and understated comment that should give us even greater confidence as to the unlimited care and infinite power of the shepherd, notice what he says at the end of verse 4. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, certainly David, being a shepherd once upon a time in his life, knew very well about the indispensable tools of the shepherd, the rod and the staff sometimes they were one and the same, but many times the rod was a very strong wooden stick or club of various lengths used primarily as a weapon, as a tool of protection. And the staff was basically a crooked stick that was used. We've seen them before in, in, uh, in pictures where the shepherd would use that crook to rescue the sheep and to move them around and to Um, protect the sheep even at times from predators. And so as we think of the rod and the staff, we think of the shepherd that would move the sheep. Sometimes he will move us to quicken our pace or direct us in a certain way and to guide us. Sometimes he will rescue us from danger. And sometimes he will protect us from predators in our life. But also we know, according to Scripture and ancient literature, that the shepherd of that day would also use that staff to help him count the sheep and even determine if the sheep had any injuries. We read about that, for example, in Leviticus 27.32 where the text speaks of the sheep passing under the rod. And what would happen... So that you have a better picture of this, the shepherd would personally take inventory of all of his sheep in the evenings and he would have them pass under the rod. And many times what he would have them do is he would stand at the entrance of the pen. And I'll speak more of that in a moment. But with a narrow opening, he would have each sheep jump over the the little rod to make sure that the sheep had no injury. And it's interesting, many of the shepherds even to this day know their sheep by name. And so what we begin to discover here as the psalmist gives us a, a, an account of the rod and the staff that comfort him, even in the midst of his agony of soul, we once again see, do we not, that the shepherd is intimately concerned and personally concerned for his own. My, what comfort that should give us. When we struggle in life. When I've been in Israel, I've seen some of the the sheep pens and some of them that I've seen, they indicate have been there for many, many, many years. And of course, you know, it's a very rocky land. And what you will find on the sides of the hills many times will be a place where the rock juts out and underneath the rock would be a bit of a cave where a person could crawl in. And what they would do very often would be to take a number of rocks and make a bit of a fence around that cave. And at one edge of the side of the, of the hillside there or the mountain, they would have just a very small opening large enough for one person and one sheep to get in at one time. And this very small doorway would allow the shepherd to attend to his sheep on a very individual basis. And then at night, the sheep would come in there and it would be a safe place for them to rest that night. And very often, the shepherds would have a hireling that would sleep in that doorway to protect the sheep from anything that would come in and certainly to keep the sheep from coming out. And sometimes the shepherd himself would do that. And it's also interesting that in that day, as well as this day, we see with many shepherds, they have a certain sound to their voice, as we all do, and the sheep learn to hear that voice. And you can take a number of sheep from different shepherds and put them all together in a pen. And the shepherd of one group of sheep can come and make his sound, make his call, and his individual sheep will come out from the rest of those sheep and follow that shepherd. And certainly our Lord, who was the good shepherd, said, My sheep hear my voice and they do what? They follow me. By the way, there is no greater indication of genuine saving faith in the life of one who calls Jesus Lord is that of obeying the shepherd's voice, his voice that we find in print in the Bible. And it's tragic that today in modern evangelicalism, many times people will say, well, you can make a profession of faith, but obedience is rather optional. Dear friends, might I submit to you that that is not a biblical concept. But might I remind you that... Jesus is the shepherd and he is the one that is even the door. You realize in John 10 verse 2, our Lord says he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Might I remind you, especially those of you that are in the wilderness of life right now, when you're in the wilderness, when you're in the valley, and no human help seems to be of any consequence, it's at that time in the quietness of the wilderness, in that desert and dry place in life, that we are quiet enough to hear the voice of the shepherd. In the wilderness, we learn his voice as in no other time in life. Our Lord went on to say in John 10, I am the door of the sheep. And later on, he says in verse uh, or I should say in verse seven, he says that in verse nine, he goes on. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. And of course, we know that salvation is not through some church affiliation, some denomination or anything like that. It's through faith in Christ alone. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And he went on to say, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd Who is not the owner of the sheep beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd and I know my own. That word in the original language means to intimately know. He knows his own and he says, and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Oh, child of God, think of this. What greater illustration could we have than this of the intimate care and concern of the shepherd that he knows us individually? He knows us personally. He knows us intimately. He says he knows us like he knows his father. Now, might I say to you, I know my dad very, very well. I know my dad much better than I know a lot of you. Why? Because I've lived with my dad. He's been my father for these 50 years of my life. So when the Lord, with perfect knowledge, says that He knows us like He knows the Father, what more can I say? We also read of this in that great benediction found in Hebrews 13 Beginning in verse 20, where we are reminded once again of God's faithfulness and his concern for us. The writer there says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And amen. And we can also rejoice in Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, 4, where he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Isn't it wonderful to know that that shepherd is coming again? Now, be careful. It is so easy especially those of you that are going going through it right now those of you that are in the crucible of grace right now those of you that are in the furnace for whatever reason it is so easy to allow the enemy and even our own flesh to try and decapitate you with the double sword of doubt and discouragement that's why in Ephesians 6 we're told to put on the armor of God and one of the pieces of the armor is to wear the helmet of salvation So that when the enemy would come and cause you to doubt your salvation and to despair as if God has somehow forsaken you, you will remember the glorious truths of who you are in Christ. So back to the psalm. Think of it this way. When we're walking through the valley, remember the rod and the staff and how they bring comfort. Remember even that simple shepherd's rod of Moses and Aaron. Remember in Egypt before Pharaoh. How that God himself empowered that staff and those men with miraculous powers to deliver and guide and protect and provide for his children as they wandered through the wilderness. And remember that someday when the good shepherd returns as king of kings and lord of lords, he will rule with holiness with a rod of iron, a rod that is rightfully the scepter of the king. We read of that in Psalm two, by the way, where he speaks of the nations that come up against the Lord and and against his anointed people and how God says in verse four of Psalm two, God sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king above my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Later on in verse 9, he says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. We also know that in his second coming, in Revelation 19.15, the text says, And from his mouth a sharp sword will come, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And so when you think, dear friends, of the rod and the staff, think of these glorious truths of how a sovereign and an infinitely powerful God can bring comfort to you regardless of what you're enduring in life. No, oh, dear friend, seek refuge in the shepherd and watch him deliver you, for indeed his rod and his staff will comfort you. Now, notice the example. He gives in verse five, he says, thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, this is a very curious statement, preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And here we see the shepherd not only as protector, but now as provider. First of all, before we endeavor to unpack this a bit, think of it this way. You know, we all have enemies, those of us that walk in faith. By the way, if you have no enemies, you better examine yourself. Because remember, in James 4, in verse 4, it says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We know even that Jesus had many enemies. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He came into his own, and his own received him not. We know that even his word, the gospel, it was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they ultimately crucified the king of glory. But notice here in this text, the providential provision that is ours in the midst of the battle. He prepares the table before me right in their presence. My, what, what magnificent blessings are ours from the hands of our shepherd. Now think of it this way. Imagine a battlefield, if you will, and it's time for you to eat. You're hungry. Well, what must you do? Well, you've got to hide yourself from the enemy. And you probably go and eat a soldier's ration. You quickly grab a bite. You do just enough to survive. There's no time to enjoy a good home-cooked meal with your family. And then it's time to get right back into battle. Well, not so with a soldier of the Most High. The Lord of hosts. The commander himself prepares the meal and he does not do it in secret he does it in plain view of the enemy think of it what incredible confidence dear friends we should have in battle to be able to eat a relaxed meal made and served by the commander himself my how this must incense the enemy think of it this way of the in your face humiliation humiliation Instead of a surrender, the enemy gets a slap. And it's almost as if the psalmist is saying that what happens here is as if I would come before my enemy and say, well, if you will excuse me, enemy, while you weary yourself in your futile attempts to somehow weaken my faith in the king, I'm going to take a break in the battle here and... A battle which, by the way, has already been won. And I'm going to dine subumptiously on a feast that has been prepared by my Savior and my Lord. By what confidence that should give us. And may, may I encourage you to remember this. The next time you feel battle-weary, the next time you feel frustrated, and I know some of you are there now because of things going on in your life where you just feel like you want to give up, Remember this and watch for him in the heat of the battle to somehow prepare some great banquet of blessing for you. In the heat of suffering, he may send some new friend to encourage you. In the crucible of persecution, he may prepare some unique blessing for you that would provide some unimaginable relief or perhaps... In the desert of confusion, He may serve you with some new insight from His Word that restores your soul. Or maybe in the depths of mourning, He suddenly comes along and brings comfort with a profound sense of His presence that you would never trade for anything. A sense of His presence that would cause you to say, you know, if I had to even go through this again, I would willingly do so because now I've had a taste of the Lord that I've never had before. Spurgeon captures well the calmness of our hearts when we fully grasp the Lord's timely provision in the wilderness. Here's what he says, and I quote, Thou preparest a table, just as a servant does when she unfolds the damask cloth and displays the ornaments of the feast on an ordinary peaceful occasion. Nothing is hurried. There is no confusion, no disturbance. The enemy is at the door, and yet God prepares the table. And the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. Oh, he says, the peace which Jehovah gives to his people, even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. My, what joy this must have brought to David's heart as he was in the wilderness fleeing from his own son. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, Thou anointed, thou hast anointed my head with oil. By the way, I must say as a footnote, when I was a young boy, I remember reading this. And we, of course, we memorized it as children. And I remember reading this, Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Somehow I had this picture of people pouring oil on someone's head and it's so much that it's running into some cup and, and it's overflowing. And I, I just never could figure that out. I thought, boy, that'd be nasty. You know, have oil on your head. and and um, But by God's grace, I understand this a bit better today. Let me explain it to you some, because it's a precious thought. First of all, the ancient Hebrews anointed themselves for festive occasions and for celebrations. And they would do this with, with, with an oil, just a little bit of oil. And it was a connotation of gladness. It was a time of celebration and great joy. In fact, we read in Psalm 45, verse 7 of the great wedding psalm, celebrating Solomon's wedding and, and ultimately pointing toward the Lord Jesus Christ. In that text, it says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore, God thy God has anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. And it's also important for you to understand that not only did they do this in a time of great celebration, but they never did this in a time of mourning, nor would they do it in a time of fasting. I'll come back to that in a moment, because that's an important point, especially in light of the fact that here David was was mourning at some level because of his external circumstances. But he was not mourning on the inside. It was a time of celebration and joy, as we will see. They would also anoint the heads of prophets and priests and kings as an expression of being consecrated to the Lord for his service. And it was more than a mere ceremony. It was literally an act that, that conveyed the power of the office whereby now the anointed would exercise authority as a theocratic vassal of the Lord himself. And so they would do that for prophets and priests and kings. We know, do we not, that the king was often called the Lord's anointed. We read that in the Old Testament. And therefore, he was a vassal of God reigning over the people on the Lord's behalf. In fact, we know, according to Acts 10.38, uh, that Jesus was anointed by God, it says, with the Holy Spirit and with power. And He was called the Anointed One. We also read in the New Testament in Second Corinthians 1, beginning in verse uh, 21, Now He who establishes, establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we read that the Trinity literally does four marvelous works of grace in the life of every believer. He establishes us, He anoints us, He seals us, and gives us His Holy Spirit. So in that text, we see Paul borrowing from this Old Testament practice of anointing or of commissioning someone to symbolically set someone apart as special servants. And in the New Testament, It is the Holy Spirit that sets us apart for a special work of proclaiming the gospel and other forms of ministry. So in light of all of that, what is the psalmist saying when he says thou hast anointed my head with oil? Well, I believe that he understood all of this. He had been earlier anointed by Samuel, remember, to be king someday. He had been set apart to be a servant king of God's covenant people. So I believe the psalmist is saying in essence three things. Let me go over them for a moment and then summarize it for you because I have found these to be precious truths that have ministered to my heart. First of all, the anointing was a symbol of celebration. He was saying that even in the midst of my trial, there is a place for joy and gladness. Every day is another opportunity for me to glorify God. Even in the midst of this valley of death, even in the heat of battle, In the very presence of my enemies, the Lord anoints my head with oil. Because here in the heat of my calamity, there is occasion for gladness and joy. An opportunity for celebration. We know later on that Paul even said that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purposes. And that's why Paul would even later on say in chapter 8, Verse 18 of Romans, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I believe the anointing was a symbol of celebration and joy in his heart. But secondly, I believe that it was also a symbol of divine commissioning, where David was in essence saying that this anointing is an expression of of God's divine commission upon my life to serve Him even now in this tragedy. That I've been set apart by the Most High God to serve Him and obey Him and glorify Him regardless of my post and to be able to proclaim the glories of Christ. I'm reminded of the little plaque that I have in my house and maybe you have it as well, where Joshua said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, not only was it a symbol of celebration and divine commissioning, but also it was a symbol of divine power. The divine power of being anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. Remember in Acts chapter 1, in the New Testament in verse 8, the text reads, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But friends, what we see is not only, not only does the Holy Spirit come upon us to give us power to proclaim the Word of God, but also power to understand it. In 1 John 2, and verse 20, it says that we have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know the truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit illumines us because of this anointing. He teaches us. He guards us from deception. And in that text, by the way, John was concerned about false teachers that were trying to deceive them. And so he was, he, he was comforted knowing, as he says in 1 John 2, verse 27, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So, in other words, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can discern truth and error. So, here's what the psalmist is saying. Not only does he prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. But He even anoints my head with oil, reminding me of the celebration and the joy and gladness that is mine because, as the New Testament says, we are more than conquerors in Christ. The victory has already been won. Satan is a defeated foe. But also, He's reminding me of my commission. I've been set apart to serve the living God. And He's reminding me of my power to not only discern the truth of God and His glory, but to be able to proclaim it. Is it any wonder that he would go on and he would say, my cup overflows. Oh, dear Christian, what what would it take to somehow get me and you to understand the depths of this passage? Here we see the supernatural surplus of what is ours in Christ Jesus. We have been anointed with every spiritual blessing. The term cup used throughout Scripture was, frankly, it's widely used as a figure of speech referring to the various kinds of life experiences that our Lord pours out for His creation. Jesus spoke of His cup of suffering in Matthew 20 that He would soon have to drink from. We read in the Old Testament and in Revelation of the cup of the wrath of God that He pours out upon the wicked and even the Lord's Supper is called the cup of blessing. So what is our cup as believers? Well, indeed, our life is eternal in Him. Therefore, our cup is one of blessing, blessings that overflow. So I love this mindset that David had. Think of it again. He's thirsty and he's hungry and he's broken hearted. And from an earthly perspective, he's, he's mourning. But in his heart, he has been able to somehow transcend the temporal and look back into the eternal. And his heart is filled with joy from a spiritual perspective. His cup is running over. You see, friends, this is more than mere optimism. This is spiritual realism. When we understand theology enough to cause us to have great joy and confidence in our shepherd in the midst of the valley. My, how easy it is to forget the manifold expressions of His grace. That's why it's important for us to count our many blessings. You know, it's easy to look at our life and we've got a a white wall, so to speak. Wonderful blessings that the white would symbolize, but boy, there's one black spot there. There's somebody persecuting us or we've got some difficulty in our life. And every time we turn to look at the wall of our life, what do we see? The white? All we see is that black spot. And it consumes us. And the psalmist here refused to be consumed with the black spot, as difficult as it was. You might say his was a huge black spot. But David is going to focus on the eternal, not the temporal. By the way, all through the Old Testament, you can look and you can see the Old Testament prophets reminding the people of all of the blessings of the Lord. And he would recite all of the provisions of his his glory in their life. And we should do no less. That's why I would encourage each of you to frequently sit down with those that you love and reflect upon the blessings that God has given you. And then he finally says in verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now think of this. He's not focused upon the enemy that's following him. He's not focused upon all oh, Absalom and, and the army that he has assembled are following us and he's going to destroy us. Of course, we know from a few weeks ago the, the outcome of that battle. He's not focusing on that. But rather, he's focusing on God's goodness and God's loving kindness that's following him. Now, that's the perspective we must have. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me. How long? Most of the time. Part of the time? Only in the good times? Never in the bad times? No. All the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, there there is the pinnacle of our hope. He's consumed with that confident hope of everlasting fellowship with the Lord. I love what Alexander McLaren wrote back after the Civil War or during that time in 1863. He says this verse, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This should be at the once or at once the crown of all our hopes for the future. And the one great lesson taught us by all the vicissitudes of life, the sorrows and the joys, the journeying and the rest, the temporary repose and the frequent struggles, all these should make us sure that there is an end which will interpret them all, to which they all point, for which they all prepare. We get the table in the wilderness here. It is as when the son of some great king comes back from foreign soil to his father's dominions and is welcomed at every stage in his journey to the capital with pomp of festival and messengers from the throne until at last he enters his palace home where the travel-stained robe is laid aside and he sits down with his father at his table. Oh, dear friends, every day is a day to celebrate life Even in the valley. Because even in the valley, we know that the Lord will reveal Himself. And may I remind you that very often, and I found this in my life, and certainly this is what the psalmist is saying, the Lord reveals Himself in the backside of the desert. May I encourage you to wait for Him there. Wait for them there, and here's why. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the glorious truths of Your Word. May they move us and motivate us and speak to us, especially those that are struggling with some profound issues in their life. Lord, use your word by the power of your spirit to comfort them and encourage them. And Lord, for those of us that are walking in times of joy right now, I pray that we might nonetheless hide these words in our heart for the inevitable valleys that will come our way when our Good Shepherd leads us through difficult times of the desert in our life to allow us to experience the profound comfort and help that You alone can give. And Lord, if there be one here today that knows nothing of You as Savior, that knows nothing of what it means to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, and to make Him the Lord of their life. Lord, I pray that You will speak to them and bring profound conviction to their heart that they might humble themselves before the Savior who died for them and that they might experience that miracle of the new birth. Lord, speak to them, I pray. Give them no comfort until they call You Lord. Thank You, Lord, for this time of worship. May it be glorifying to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit resources.org.